Hello, time-traveling captains, cat-loving androids, and omnipotent higher-dimensional beings. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, and before we get started today, I just want to let you know that my co-host Elise and I were recently on episode 136 of Warp 5, Trek FM's Star Trek Enterprise podcast, talking about the evolution of the Zindi. I think it's a fascinating listen, and essentially a bonus episode of Strange New Worlds, except that we're augmented by the incredible presence of Patrick Devlin, Brandon Shea Mutala, and Brandy Jackala. Trek FM is full of amazing Star Trek content that you don't want to miss, and we can't wait to be back on the network soon. Today, Elise and I are bringing you an episode all about the origin of life. This is one of my favorite subjects to talk about, and to gear us up and put us in a happy mood, we watched the Next Generation series finale, All Good Things. Well, welcome back. Yeah, good. We're just smiling. Yeah, post-Star Trek, just happy glow. And it was a wonderful Star Trek episode, too. We watched All Good Things, parts one and two, mm-hmm. the finale of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yep. At least this was your first time watching this episode. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Oh, man. This reminds me why I like Star Trek so much. Because it's so easy to forget sometimes when you watch like one of those old original series episodes is just full of kitschiness and guys underneath styrofoam rugs pretending to be Hordas. I mean, that's great in its own way, but like the, the good, heartwarming, hopeful, happy, positive view of the future and hope for humanity, man, Next Gen does it so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next Gen does it so well. That was just such a beautiful way to wrap up the series, because I had never actually watched Next Gen from beginning to end. I've seen almost every episode here or there, but yeah, it's especially for a series after coming off of Discovery, which was a series that's so serialized and everything had a big arc that was going towards a resolution, Next Gen wasn't like that. It was just a classic Star Trek series in which there was a new plot every episode or two, and man, they found a really, really beautiful way to wrap it up and give it a sense of closure and that was really surprising to me also i just i love q and so any time that q appears makes me super happy and that they mirrored the the pilot episode gave it the symmetry it was just very satisfying to watch even though i haven't been watching next gen for a while if you're a long time listener of this podcast you know that i grew up watching star trek voyager when i was a wee little lad Small, Mikey boy. in elementary school and then I got Star Trek Enterprise for my angsty teenage years and oh in middle school and early high school but I never actually went back to rewatch The Next Generation until really late high school and I went through it episode by episode and I finally got to All Good Things and when I watched this episode I was like wow that was the best episode of Star Trek that I've ever seen. I remember distinctly thinking that right after I watched this episode. And I had grown up with the the Next Gen movies as well, of which there are four. And honestly, I really think that this episode is better than at least three of the four of those movies. Mm-hmm. It's Well, and it's a two-parter, so it is almost movie length. It's basically yeah. a movie. There are movies about this long. It's an hour and a half. 
and it holds up so well. This episode is now about 25 years old. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I still... Weird special effects and all. Like, nothing could... It's just so good. Nothing took away from it. It was the perfect combination of finding closure and having a feeling of an ending, but also just... It was an open ending. And it felt like a normal Star Trek episode in that it had its own little contained plot that got resolved by the end, but it also felt like the resolution to the whole thing because they brought back the very beginning as well Mm -hmm. and gave us a teaser for the future too and told us to imagine better futures than the ones we might think we're going to have. It It was just very hopeful and so great and Patrick Stewart is just such an amazing actor I was so impressed by the, the, the changes in the scenes and maintaining the different Picards and the three different timelines it was awesome reminds me why I like Star Trek yeah I think I, I probably like that more than any individual episode of Discovery probably for yeah. sure oh goodness yeah. yes not even the the heartwarming speech at the end could playing poker better than any heartwarming speech yeah. You should go watch the episode, because we're not going to explain everything that happened in it. It's just fantastic, and you need to experience the warm glow that we are currently experiencing <laughs> as we talk about this. And so listen to us after you watch the episode. Like I said, we're just smiling from end to end, drinking tea. Yeah, tea, chamomile, warm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Card would be so disappointed. So some things that stuck out for this episode for me definitely was that future in in the future data is a professor at cambridge mm-hmm. he has the i forget the name of the chair yeah but he's it's, got the chair that newton had yeah yep. and that um i think stephen hawking currently has mm-hmm. yep. so you know give it a couple hundred more years and it'll be occupied by an android yeah with a bunch of cats <laughs> data loves cats oh I was reminded how precious Data was in this episode and how much he's grown. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a it's such a good story of character development for Data. So even in these series that don't have necessarily these huge overarching plots like sort of Enterprise had a little bit and then Discovery is completely this way, you have all this character development and change that happens and everybody gets their own little spot in the limelight. I feel like we know so much more about the crew in series like this because they each get their own chance to sort of shine and tell their story a little bit. Because, like, what if... Oh, what's her name? Air, Ariel? Arium. Yeah. What if Arium has a story like Data and she's trying to learn to be more human or something like... We'll never know because she's not important to the, to the serialized plot of Discovery. Mm-hmm. And speaking of characters who maybe didn't get their fair share of the limelight in Star Trek... You know, Next Generation had a couple of characters who were maybe underappreciated, but they even brought those back. They so they, Yar. they brought back Tasha Yar. They had Colmini playing Chief O'Brien in this episode. Mm-hmm. And when this episode was made, um, Chief O'Brien was a regular on Deep Space Nine, um, being the chief engineer over there. And we got to see him reprise his role as you know Chief O'Brien, the, the transporter officer who basically doesn't know how to do anything else but <laughs> transport things around. And Picard says, I have so much faith in you. Yep. You, can, you can figure this out in the past timeline that Picard was visiting. So that mm-hmm. was really nice to see. Picard, of course, slipped up. It was a funny moment when he was in this uh, past timeline, first day on the Enterprise. Um, he gives Worf an order that he should be giving to Yar because back then Yar was the chief of security, but, but he's been so used yeah, to war. Since Yar, since Yar died, mm-hmm. it was great to let her come back to for the end. Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of paying homage to this character who was and is 
through data sort of important continuously, but who had like an actual returning part on the show and who was important for the beginning. And because it was, this episode really was about like beginnings and endings and futures. The fact that they would bring her back and sort of remind us where the show came from in the beginning. And when they like, when they say we're going to Farpoint Station, I was just like, oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. It's just Farpoint Station. Oh, it was, oh, that's just such a good episode. Go watch it. Mm -hmm. Go watch it. Go watch it right now. Something that occurred to me during this episode, in mm-hmm. the context of the fact that we just finished the first season of Discovery, was that in the future timeline, with the three warp nacelled Enterprise, Admiral Riker and Governor Worf, the Federation and the Klingon Empire were sort of at odds again. Mm-hmm. At and- odds enough that they could just, you know, attack each other within their territory. Which, even when you're... Like, that's only something you do when you're sort of at war, at least in most cases that I've heard of, like, with Earth nations. You don't usually just attack people. Mm-hmm. So maybe they were in some kind of active war. They didn't say. Yeah. They didn't say what's going on. They just said, we're not on friendly terms. So this is a completely spontaneous question that I thought up here, Elise. So, oh, boy. Um, a lot of people are giving Discovery a lot of flack for its anachronistic looks, right? That It looks too modern. They've got holograms here and there. Um, the, the ship's are much larger than they should be. Why is everything even more future techy than the original series when it's supposed to take place 10 years before the original series? Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, do you think that they could have told basically the same discovery story if they had set it in the future past the end of Next Gen and Voyager and Deep Space Nine? Yeah, absolutely. They totally could have. And then not They have... just couldn't have had Spock and Sarek and, you know, alluded to Pike maybe showing up. So they wouldn't have had enough as much fan bait to deal with. But they also wouldn't have angry, like, Reddit fans dissecting the layout of every starship that they flash up there. Mm-hmm. And we're friends with one of these angry Reddit fans <laughs> who has a collection of starships. I don't know if he's actually on Reddit. <laughs> but, but the sentiment is there. And, you know, it's delightful that people are this devoted to the show that they actually know these sorts of things but yeah they, they could have avoided that entirely by just setting it in a future because it seems like every time that the federation makes peace with the klingons it sort of falls apart eventually they're sort of destined to come into conflict a bit because rightfully in some ways the klingons see the federation as a threat to their way of life and the, they're just completely incompatible ways of being for these two it's same like the Borg. Like, the Borg aren't necessarily trying to be mean to the Federation. They just kind of exist, and their way of existing is incompatible with the Federation. So they will inevitably come in contact, even though neither side is doing anything evil, per se. They're just sort of existing in their own way. And it seems like this is sort of the case with the Klingon Empire mm-hmm. as well. So definitely, I think they could have said it in the future, just not as much fan bait. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I guess... You couldn't have the uh, original Enterprise come up and meet the Discovery. No, but you could have the future Enterprise. You could have Enterprise E or something like that. Also, you know, I would have accepted the Spore Drive a little bit more in the future. (laughs) Right, because they still haven't explained that away fully. You know, I feel like there are some cases that, unless they completely explain away the Spore Drive, unless they come up with some way to make it completely impossible in the future... There are some cases where I feel like they would have been like, all right, we have no other option but to spore drive who's signing up for the genetic modifications. We know we can't do it to humans, but hey, you Denobulans, you do it all the time. Do we have a Denobulan crewmate? Like, 
it feels like something that there have been enough emergencies that <laughs> that being able to literally pop up anywhere in the universe would have come in handy. So it's kind of weird to me that they came up with this sort of like god level technology that just never shows up again. Wait, does Q live in the mycelial network? Yeah, what's the relationship <laughs> between Q and the mycelial network? Just maybe hmm. just different, you know. Yeah, planes. I feel like Q is above the mycelial <laughs> yeah, network. Too. Hey. Hey, what if that tardigrade is like way more evolved than Q? <laughs> I feel like that would be a great. I want to see Q meet the tardigrade. Yeah. Q and Picard and the tardigrade are all in a room, and Picard is looking at the tardigrade and he's just like, Ugh, this like gross, weird animal. And, you know, Mike thinks it's cute, but it's kind of weird and gross. It looks slimy. So Picard's like, oh, what, why have you brought this to me, Q? Like, is this another one of your weird tricks? And Q's like, ah, I wanted to show you an organism that is truly evolved. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who passed just, all just our trials you, of can, flying yeah, can colors. You, can you imagine Picard's face? Just the, the, the deadpan, the, the deadpan Patrick Stewart face. Just, why? Why did you do this, Q? Yeah. Uh, Q riding a tardigrade through space. Somebody please draw this. Tweet it at me or Mike. <laughs> please. There you go. Make it so. Make it so. Yes. The reason we watched this episode is because we've been teasing the origin of life. So, in order to help Picard understand what's going on with these temporal shifts and this giant temporal anomaly that is threatening to destroy humanity, Q takes Picard back in time. Mm -hmm, to about the Archean. three and a half billion years ago, as Elise says, we call that period the Archean. Mm -hmm. And... He shows Picard a warm little pond of goo. 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 <laughs> In which <laughs> amino acids are coming together to create the first protein. Oh boy. The building blocks of what you call oh life. <laughs> Do you have the quote up? So great. Are you looking at the quote? I'm not looking at the quote. You just know it? <laughs> oh boy. So I usually show this clip in the astrobiology class, usually meaning I've taught the class twice and I've shown it the first time. But the second time, you know, we've just had so much to say. I've given Elise a couple of great guest lectures, which she is been a rock star at and i've learned new things uh, new scientific things that i've injected into my lectures so sometimes i run out of time and don't get to show my star trek clip so i didn't actually show this clip this year but i usually like to lead off the origin of life section with this clip because it kind of just gives a nice little visual illustration uh, and a description as narrated by q of what is called the primordial soup hypothesis mm -hmm. You've probably heard of the primordial soup hypothesis for the origin of life because it's taught in all of the basic biology classes. It's it's the theory to beat, really, in terms of the origin of life. Yeah, and if you've watched any kind of popular science things on TV, uh, if you've watched Cosmos, either version mentions the primordial soup theory as sort of the... They, they go into more detail for it, and maybe they'll mention a few other ideas for how life got started, but it's really presented as the state of scientific knowledge, which is a little misleading. But it, it is the theory to beat, as Mike says. And it was originated by a man named Alexander Oprin, who lived in Russia. And he believed that Earth had a very, what we call, reduced atmosphere. It has a lot of molecules with a lot of hydrogen in them. So methane, CH4, ammonia, NH3, water vapor, H2O, mm -hmm. and just hydrogen gas as well, H2. And Oprin posited that if you 
put in some energy into the system of reduced atmospheric gases, you could create the building blocks of life. And I know you've done some research on exactly how that energy could get put in. That involved some pretty fun lightning. Yeah. Well, lightning is a great way to shock atmospheric gases, and you get some pretty crazy chemistry happening. It's alive! <laughs> yeah. Oh, Frankenstein? You're going to bring Frankenstein into this? Hey, this I mean, it's, it sounds just, you, you shock a bunch of dead stuff, and it, it's alive! <laughs> yeah. For, for Oprin, this was actually pretty exciting because this idea fell into line with his very materialistic worldview that came out of communist Russia at the time. And it spoke to there being really no fundamental difference between living matter and non-living matter. It was all just a matter of chemistry. And if you give chemistry enough energy, you will get the building blocks of life, which will then self-assemble into the first living being. Mm -hmm. And this was experimentally done, not all the way until the experiment didn't create the first living being, but it did create the building blocks of life. This was done by a graduate student named Stanley Miller in 1952. Stanley Miller was a PhD student at the University of Chicago working with Harold Urey, who was a Nobel Prize winning chemist or physicist, which one? A Nobel Prize winner. Yes. <laughs> well, he discovered deuterium, the first isotope, um, which is basically heavy hydrogen. Actually, deuterium is Star Trek relevant because they burn deuterium in their um, matter-antimatter warp cores. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's what, they, that's what they always say they're burning, and I'm not really sure why they're burning deuterium, because it's like less common than just hydrogen. Well, you know, if it was common... It wouldn't do warp. <laughs> yeah. If there's anything we've learned from dilithium crystals, it's that if it's easy to get your hands on, it's not going to take you to space. So. <laughs> also, what is dilithium? You know, like... <laughs> we, should, we should do an episode <laughs> talking about why that's not a thing. And <laughs> <laughs> why, too. Okay. It's um... the biggest lie of Star Trek. <laughs> Well, yeah, so Stanley Miller uh, basically created an experimental apparatus for testing Oprin's theory and basically shocked these reduced gases inside of a test tube using an electric spark. So basically, he just sort of made a guess as to what the early Earth's atmosphere would look like based on some work geologists had done and then put water, like an ocean, in a, in a flask, basically in a test tube with this atmosphere and then shocked it with a whole bunch of lightning and saw what happened. Exactly. Just a small point on, on what you said, the, the atmosphere of early Earth was assumed to be the atmosphere of Jupiter. Really? Yeah, because Jupiter is supposed to be this giant thing that swallowed up all of the initial gas of the solar system and that we might be able to see what the initial composition of early planets would look like from that because Jupiter doesn't lose any atmosphere. It's so massive that it, nothing is really going to escape from Jupiter. So they assumed that there would be a lot of methane, ammonia, and hydrogen in Earth's early atmosphere, just like there is a lot of those things in Jupiter's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But then it was the geologists who actually came and said, maybe that wasn't. Try this was again. In, yeah, yeah because I was about atmosphere. to say, the Earth does something that Jupiter probably doesn't, which is outgas a lot of material from the interior through volcanoes and other kinds of ways for the interior of the Earth to communicate with the atmosphere. And also Earth is a lot smaller, so if there was this sort of input from the interior, it could really change the atmosphere. Yeah, so that's maybe a thing that you should be scratching your head about is like, hmm, was that really the composition of Earth's early atmosphere? Anyhow, so if you assumed that Earth had plenty of methane and ammonia and water vapor in its atmosphere and you shocked it with lightning, 
you end up getting really cool things. You, you get formaldehyde and hydrogen cyanide, even amino acids and sugars like ribose. And these are the things that build up the molecules that are found in all of us, mm -hmm. right? our proteins, our nucleic acids, the lipids in our cell membranes, you know, they're, they're all built out of things that can be built out of these smaller molecules. So when you say building blocks, that's actually a really good metaphor, not just something that people say a lot, because these big giant molecules in our bodies are a lot like big giant things made of Legos. And you get the individual Legos out of the Miller-Urey experiment, but not the whole giant structure, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's really worth noting, too, that these Lego blocks, we find them not just in experiments that might have described the environment of early Earth, but also in outer space. And Seriously? We've been able to find... You found outer space sugars. Outer space. Well, things that aren't exactly sugars. We find very particular molecules in outer space. Um, they need to be sort of lopsided molecules in order to interact with radio waves, which is how we detect them. So we have this great new telescope called ALMA. It's an array of radio telescopes in the Atacama Desert. And it basically just turns itself to the sky and it looks for things that will interact with radio waves. And organic molecules, really complex organic molecules, have been found really recently with ALMA. It's just come online in the past few years. And so these things are being created in the giant molecular clouds that end up forming planetary systems. They're also um, found in things like comets and meteorites. Wait, so when you say organic molecules, are you saying that we found life in these places? No, unfortunately, it's not quite as exciting as that. Organic to a chemist or to a, to a scientist or an astrobiologist like us basically means a molecule that is comprised of carbon and hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, these types of things. And life is primarily composed of those four elements and then phosphorus, sulfur, and various other elements as well. But Organic just really honestly means a molecule that is made up of a subset of those things. And we are organic beings because we are also made of those things. Oh, okay, cool. I just wanted to like double check because I was going to get super excited about comet life. <laughs> why didn't anyone tell me about the aliens? Yeah, well, comets, although they don't have life, <laughs> are still pretty cool. Um, so the European Space Agency recently visited a comet called 67P. Russian name, Russian name. <laughs> I'm it looks not like a rubber ducky. It. Yeah. it looks like a rubber ducky. If you search yeah. rubber ducky comet on the internet, you'll probably find it. Churyumov Gerasimenko or something We're so like sorry. Yeah. Anybody who My speaks apologies. Russian. <laughs> comet 67P. Yeah. Um, I'll call it 67P from now on because I can pronounce numbers in English. <laughs> um, they found glycine in this comet, and glycine is an amino acid. It is one of the building blocks of life. And in meteorites, especially what we call carbonaceous chondrites, carbonaceous, again, just signaling that there's a lot of carbon-bearing material, a lot of organics in these meteorites, have tons of complex organic molecules and these comets and meteorites were just raining down on early Earth. So whether you're building organics in the atmosphere or just waiting for them to fall from the sky, early Earth probably had a soup of organics sitting on the surface, not too dissimilar from what Q put his hand into 
in this episode. All right. Well, I have a little bit of a problem with Q's soup because it looked pretty thick. And if we're thinking about the early Earth and as sort of like a water world or this sort of organic soup, it's hard for me to imagine that you could get any sort of ocean that's that thick with organics. And even, even if you could, it's really hard to synthesize a lot of organic molecules in an environment that has a lot of water in it, which is sort of counterintuitive. But the way that, for instance, proteins get fit together is to fit two of these amino acids together, to click these Lego blocks together, you need to liberate a water. It releases a water when you do this. And the way that chemistry and equilibrium works is that if you have a lot of one of the products of a reaction, then the reaction doesn't really want to go that way. It's sort of kept from going towards that end because there's so much of the product already. And so if you've got a lot of water around, it's less favorable for you to click these Lego blocks together to make more and more complex molecules. So how do you go from the Legos to the castle if you've got this sort of dilute soup going on? Yeah, how do you turn these bricks falling from the sky into your castle? Yeah, how do you Tetris it up? People who work with the soup theory like to appeal to what are called wet-dry cycles. And actually, Q's little pool looks uh, like it could possibly have fit one of these scenarios. So they hypothesize that you can get enough of a concentration of goo basically at what would be a tide pool. Oh, okay. Yeah, and what happens is sometimes the water sloshes in at high tide, and you can do all of the aqueous chemistry that you need to do when the water's present. And then the water flows out at low tide, and you are able to do this polymerization, the types of bonds that need to form in the absence of a lot of water. The thing is, on really, really early Earth, so the early Archean or the late Hadean, the Hadean would be the epoch right before the uh, Archean between four and a half and four billion years ago, Earth probably was full of water. And in, in, in fact, the continents may not have formed yet. And so there wasn't a lot of land surface, yeah. perhaps just the tippy tops of a few volcanic spires, but not much. Interesting. So you would have had to find a different way to get life to get started. Yeah, or appeal to a planet with a little less water, like Mars. Oh, really? Yeah. So there are some theories. Um... <laughs> oh, boy. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. And they're uh, mostly spearheaded by a professor at Caltech. And... Joe Kirchvig. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Joe's a wonderful guy. If you ever have the chance to talk to him, he'll tell you about three crazy ideas in the span of 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah. And he'll probably have another 50 in his head. And they're all so crazy that when one of them, by some miracle, turns out to be true, it's just absolutely revolutionary. This is the guy who brought you, quote, birds have magnets in their brains, and, quote, the entire Earth was covered in ice multiple times in its history, all the way down to the equator. So he's had some pretty nutso ideas that turned out to be true. Mm -hmm. And this is one of his nutso ideas that mm, we can't really prove if it's true or not yet. Not yet. Well, anyhow, Joe thinks that we all came from Mars. Specifically Tharsis. Which is a volcanic region on Mars, uh, basically a plateau of giant volcanoes. It's like Hawaii on steroids. Exactly. And Joe thinks that we originated on Tharsis, on the slopes of Tharsis, perhaps the slopes of Mount Olympus, the largest volcano in the solar system, because Mars probably had some liquid water in the past, but not as much as Earth. And so you could get this wet-dry cycling on the highest points of Mars, the tippy tops of these volcanoes, and polymerize the first 
complex organic molecules there. And then after life formed on Mars, it got knocked off onto an asteroid that spun around the solar system for a while and then eventually found its way onto Earth. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you're saying that life without a spaceship managed to hold onto a rock catapulted off of a planet after a meteorite impact and somehow land on the Earth. Yeah, pretty much. Does this happen? Do we know it? if this happens at all? Yeah, it definitely happens. Earth and Mars have been trading rocks for four and a half billion years. And in fact, we have Martian meteorites. But the idea that you could, you know, if I was holding onto a rock and got catapulted through space, I would just be dead immediately. Could this actually happen? Could life hitchhike across the solar system like this? One of Joe Kirschving's specialities is paleomagnetism, which is basically looking at the alignment of little magnetic grains within ancient rocks. And by looking at the paleomagnetism of a specific Martian meteorite called ALH84001. Oh, the infamous meteorite. Yeah, which Joe loves for multiple reasons. But for today's podcast, basically, Joe and his students have studied the magnetic orientation of the minerals in this Martian meteorite. And it turns out that rocks will reorient their magnetic mineral orientations if they get heated too high. You can heat a rock past what is called its Curie temperature. And if you do so, then it will reorient all of its little dipoles in its minerals to whatever ambient field influencing that rock at the time. And by studying the paleomagnetism, Joe's team was able to discover that this particular meteorite from Mars hadn't been raised above habitable temperatures since it left Mars, which is pretty freaking incredible because you normally think of something streaking through Earth's atmosphere and getting heated up, just blazing hot. And we see this in Star Trek all the time when <laughs> ships enter atmospheres, yeah, right? Yeah. It's not a fun time. But it turns out that things fall through Earth's atmosphere pretty quickly, um, especially when you're on a trajectory coming from Mars and you're just you know, you, I don't know if I should. <laughs> you can't see Mike doing it, but he just made this like pantomime of its finger just hitting yeah. his hand. Basically, what happens is that only the outer couple of like millimeters, millimeters. of the rock, yeah, wow. gets heated like a up. Fingernail. It's it's White ridiculously width. small. The amount of rock that actually gets blazing hot, and the interior of all that rock doesn't at all. So if you ever go see a meteorite in uh, a natural history museum, I highly encourage it, you'll probably end up seeing what is called the fusion crust around the meteorite. And that's just this very blackened layer that is really, really tiny. And the rest of the rock just looks like a normal rock because it was never really heated up that high. And so the scorched part of the rock, sure, if any microbes were on there, they would be gone. But if you had any rock-hosted life, like the chemosynthetic life forms that Elise talked about a couple of podcasts ago, living inside of that rock, they'd be completely fine. And they would survive the journey from Mars to Earth. Yeah, and I guess there are plenty of life forms that wouldn't even have to necessarily be actively, quote-unquote, living sure. while they were in transit. Like, going back to the tardigrade, part of why I think they chose a tardigrade is because tardigrades are just so infamous for being indestructible. And there are plenty of microbes. Tardigrades are small animals, but there are plenty of microbes which are even more indestructible than tardigrades. And they can basically become spores and give up a lot of their function temporarily to become basically just 
these little bastions of indestructible cellular preservation. And um, they can live through drought, they can live through fire, they can live through the vacuum of space and then just get rehydrated and keep on kicking. And these things can survive for a really long time. So I guess if the time scale was right to get material from Mars to Earth, maybe it would be possible. But I think it's probably a little bit more feasible to imagine life actually starting on the planet we find it on, especially since we haven't been able to find any evidence of ancient life on Mars at all. And so, like Mike mentioned, if the early Earth was a water world, we might need to think about life getting started in some kind of aquatic environment instead. And it turns out that there is a competing theory for the supist dogma. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll call them supists from now on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people do get quite, quote, religious about this. And I'm quoting Mike Russell, who's sort of the father of this competing theory. He likes to criticize people for being too religious about their ideas sometimes in the context of they'll just take their ideas on faith instead of truly thinking about it in a scientific way. But in any case, Mike Russell's idea is that life could have gotten started at what he calls alkaline hydrothermal vents. And these are a little different from the hydrothermal vents you're probably thinking of, or that if you watched the Cosmos episode on the origin of life, they showed when they said life could have started at a hydrothermal vent. You're probably thinking of black smokers, which are vents that get their fluid heated up by lavas in the earth. Alkaline hydrothermal vents are a lot colder. They're still really warm. You'd still get burnt if you went and stuck your hand in one, um, but they're much colder and they're much more alkaline. So much more basic, anti-acid. And basically like Mike was saying earlier, reducing power or reduction, that's having a lot of hydrogen around. And these things are just full of hydrogen. And the way that they form is there's a reaction that happens on the seafloor where rock gets changed chemically by the water that's flowing through it and one mineral called olivine gets turned into another called serpentine in this process called serpentinization which sounds like a process that creates snakes yeah <laughs> <laughs> actually serpentine is named because it's sort of like slimy when it's wet and it's green like a snake um, although i've never actually seen a green snake and i've i have had like pet snakes and I, anyways, snakes are not always green, but <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like a process to just like the bottom of the ocean floor. You've got these like snakes just slithering out of the rocks. It's, no, it's like a Harry Potter spell. Yeah, or something. it's like Serpentino. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe no snakes crawling out of the ocean floor, but you do get these alkaline hydrothermal vents that are full of this hydrogen enriched fluid that's coming up out of the ground. And what Mike Russell thinks could have happened is that the early Earth's atmosphere wasn't quite as reducing as people think it was, that it could have been CO2 rich, and that the CO2 could have gone into the ocean like it's doing now and acidified it a bit. For context, CO2, when it mixes with water, makes carbonic acid. And this carbonic acid is out of equilibrium with the hydrogen in the vent fluid. And so there's this sort of chemical slope, this chemical energy slope, from the inside of the vent, which has all of this hydrogen in it, to the outside of the vent, which has all of this carbonic acid. And so there's this pH gradient. And what pH is, is basically just hydrogen ions, H plus, a charge gradient. And this charge gradient can get pretty high, like a couple hundred millivolts. And what Mike Russell thinks happened is that 
this environment where you have protons flowing from one side of the vent to the other, just forced naturally by this chemical disequilibrium, is where life got started with its metabolism. And the reason that he thinks that this happened is because in all of our cells, the way that energy is stored is in keeping protons in one place across a membrane out of equilibrium with the other place across the membrane and letting them just flow through, pushed by this disequilibrium. And they spin something called ATPase, which is basically an enzyme that's a turbine in your cells that harnesses the energy from these protons flowing through and makes ATP, which is the energy currency in cells. And so Mike Russell doesn't think that ATP synthase, this turbine, was there at the beginning of life, but he does think that life started with metabolism instead of structure, which is sort of what the soup theory is all about. So he's focused more on what life does, and what life does is resolve this disequilibrium between the H2 and the CO2, and the soupists are focusing more on what life is, which is the organic molecules that make it up. So Mike Russell's idea, the, the alkaline hydrothermal vent idea, would have all of that structural component coming after the metabolic pathways to create structure were developed. Sounds pretty good to me. It's very confusing, though. Yeah, so... it is a bit hard to wrap your head around. Like, what is this metabolism just existing on its own? And what even is this sort of proton motive force, this disequilibrium across from the inside of the vent to the outside of the vent? So there are two fundamental disequilibria that you mentioned. And I just want to make sure that people caught that. Yeah. At these vents, there is a redox disequilibrium. Mm -hmm. and, and a pH. And a pH gradient. Yeah. And so a redox gradient and a pH gradient. They're very similar, but slightly different. So the redox gradient is between the H2 and the CO2. And the pH gradient is between the alkaline fluid, which has a lot of OH minus, which is on the inside of the vent, and the acidic fluid on the outside of the vent, which has a lot of H plus. And so there's the one gradient between how much hydrogen you've got in one place or another, or really how many electrons you have in one place versus another, because hydrogen is just sort of carrying these electrons around with it. And the other disequilibrium is between how many H plus ions, how many little positive charges you've got in one place or another. So those are the two gradients. And the funny thing about life today is that we take a redox gradient, our cells will take this redox gradient and relieve that redox gradient to release free energy that we use to pump protons across a cell membrane to create a proton gradient. So essentially, this would be like somebody burning fuel to run an engine to pump water up a hill to let the water run back through a turbine to generate electricity instead of just getting your electricity from running the engine in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> so Mike Russell likes to say, this is terrible engineering. Life is <laughs> Yeah, and if you imagine somebody proposing to you, yes, I would like to burn trees to power an engine to pump water up a hill to let it fall back down to power my water turbine. You'd be like, that's absolutely ludicrous. Why don't you just burn the trees um, and power, power your turbine from there in the first place? There's this unnecessary step of storing energy that you got from a chemical potential as a different kind of energy potential. Instead of pumping water up a hill and storing it as gravitational potential energy, cells pump protons across their membranes and store this energy as this proton gradient, this desire of the protons to flow across and equilibrate, having the same number, the same concentration on both sides of the gradient. 
So they store chemical potential energy as a proton motive force, and that's where they end up getting their energy from, which is absolutely wild. It's this completely unnecessary step. But if you think that life got started at event, if you got your energy from the environment like this, you would be getting paid to eat your free lunch at the beginning of the origin of life, as Mike Russell likes to say, because you have all of these protons just getting pumped through the vent wall anyways. So you can just sort of sit there and just take them. They're just there. You're just getting energy if you can take advantage of it. And today, life just tries to recreate that scenario the best it can because that's where we all came from, according yeah. to this hypothesis. Mm -hmm. So if the machinery for extracting energy from your environment to do biochemistry started at events, it makes sense why we have to keep producing this sort of ludicrous condition within ourselves always, constantly, for the rest of the history of life. I think we should say a few words about who Mike Russell is. Yeah, he works at JPL. He's, um, like we said, the father of this idea. He's very well known for his work as a geochemist and very adamantly against the super. <laughs> <laughs> I have a quote from a scientist named Nick Lane who once wrote about Mike Russell. Mike Russell is a kind of prophetic scientific bard prone to incantations of geopoetry and has a view of life rooted in thermodynamics and geochemistry that seems obscure to many biochemists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really true. And you hear Mike and I like ramble about redox a lot. And this is because in a lot of ways we're sort of like intellectual adopted children of Mike Russell because we go to these meetings with him and listen to him wax poetic about geochemistry and the origin of life. And his view is very rooted in these, in these redox disequilibria. So we sort of hinted in a previous podcast that we're big fans of ramen. Mm -hmm. and we, we actually just had ramen tonight. Yeah, right before watching All Good Things. So it's been a really good night. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty good. Ramen, really nice Star Trek episode. Mm. And then Podcasting. we get to talk about the origin of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. When... Not that we weren't talking about the origin of life while we were eating ramen. I mean, yeah. Uh, at least literally said today, it's hard to not think about metabolism while you're eating. It's true. <laughs> well, today, yeah, we were talking about all sorts of crazy interesting redox reactions the way photosynthesis works but a couple of weeks ago we were talking about crazy redox reactions and then decided that we would invent our own redox reaction yeah our which, own metabolism yeah which runs mike russell which <laughs> is that he consumes anger and breathes fury, fury. yes and this is specifically in the context of certain scientific conferences where his arch rivals happen to be. Yeah. So you're not a proper scientist unless you have a couple of arch rivals. And Mike Russell is a very proper scientist with very proper arch rivals. And so at conferences, they sometimes sort of sabotage each other's talks and stuff. It's quite funny, actually. But there is a lot of sort of incoherent screaming. <laughs> very coherent, poetic geochemistry. Well, th there's a lot of emotion in yeah. the emergence of life field. And this sort of is just a result of the fact that there isn't actually any data that proves or disproves any one theory or another. Mm -hmm. And so as long as there isn't data, as long as we haven't actually discovered an emergence of life in the lab or have seen other life forms on, say, Europa or Enceladus or on Titan that proves that life can originate on such alien worlds. It's hard for one person to say, my theory is correct and yours is not for these logical reasons. And sometimes 
emotion comes, comes into it. it. Yeah. So the origin of life is one of my favorite topics to talk about, mm. and I think it's one of Elise's as well. Yeah, we always come back to it, for sure. Yeah, so it's been a pleasure talking about this. I'm glad we finally got yeah, the chance to do our... finally stopped teasing you. Origin of life. With the origin there of we life. Go. You know, we'll probably talk about it again in some way. Almost certainly. There are people who think life started with clays. Don't even go there, Elise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go there. That concludes episode 32 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed our discussion about the origin of life and learned something new about the theories for how life started on our world and others. The origin of life has a special place in the heart of this podcast. As you may remember, I teach the astrobiology class at Caltech, and I invented an assignment as a sort of capstone to the origin of life unit. It's a science podcast where students pair up, one role plays a staunch supist, while the other role plays a vehement ventist, and they debate which theory is right. They're free to present their sides as floridly and as passionately as they wish, end with either theory as the victor, or hold hands and sing kumbaya. As long as their facts are correct and their arguments follow a logical flow, they'll get full credit. It's honestly the most fun assignment to grade, and I hope it's also fun for the students. When Elise took the class last year, she pulled an all-nighter working on her podcast, not because it was difficult, but because she really enjoyed it and wanted to do a good job. Seeing all of my students make and submit such great podcasts on the timescale of a week made me really consider starting one of my own. And if you're still listening to this, then you know the rest is history. This year, I assigned the science podcast assignment again, and two students, Caroline Howard and Tyler Perez, decided to make a video parody of Strange New Worlds for their Origin of Life podcast. It was absolutely hilarious. And it really made me think, wow, Podcasting has come full circle for me, just like the ending of All Good Things and Star Trek The Next Generation. Until next time, see you out there. The show will begin. Good music. Good music to start. Welcome to Strange New Worlds, science and Star Trek podcast. <laughs> they're, they're dressed like us. Oh no, it's coming, Sam! <laughs> My people at 420. At least the Kraken. Territory we've never ventured into before. Like, look, look at the crappily drawn, like, Star Trek and Sigma as a background. God. I feel like she even did her hair yeah, like this. Yours. RNA, she like, just, she, like, made it, put, you know, put it in the front, it's you know, a little wavy. Yeah. It's wavier than normal. Yeah. <laughs>
She's wearing like the maroon sweatshirt over her. Hardcore, but it wouldn't, that doesn't sound very soup like to me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and the drawing changes. <laughs> the oh, I didn't notice. Um, but in response to that, there were wet and dry cycles. It, it's like Professor Spunk from Spark. <laughs> what? You are not logistical. <laughs> Is that back then in Earth history, there was no ozone there. The Earth's surface is being bombarded by deadly UV radiation. I mean, any life form would probably die faster than some throwaway red shirt in a random Star Trek. I like that. Oh, I like that. Well, we know the UV rays would kill me outside because I'm made of porcelain. <laughs> what? Does that like? Oh, your albedo. She's not wrong. <laughs> I'm really pale. See, that is one difficulty to over overcome, certainly. But I think the, the big point is that we have this redox gradient. We have the energy source. We don't lack that. You know, energy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, energy. <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but it was awesome. <laughs>